0: Well, let's begin in prayer. Oh, Lord, you bring life out of death. You cause bones to be renewed so that they are living and active. Would you, this morning, speak through your word, bringing life out of death. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, some of you may have seen the movie that was made in 1999 starring Bruce Willis, The Sixth Sense. The story revolves around his work as a psychologist trying to help a young boy who claims to see dead people. The movie is full of twists, shocks, and a very unexpected finish. In fact, almost everyone I've talked to, once they saw it and saw the end, immediately wanted to watch the whole movie over again. And when they did, it wasn't that they saw anything new, but they saw everything with new eyes. Having seen the ending, every scene, every part had new meaning, had new importance to it that they had not recognized before then. With that in mind, consider Paul's words in 1 Corinthians fifteen three through 4 He says, For I delivered to you as in first importance what I also received, that Christ died... For our sins according to the scriptures. And that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Well, what scriptures is Paul referring to? Is he referring to Isaiah 53? Well, perhaps. Is he referring to Psalm 22 or Psalm 118 or many of the other passages? Well, definitely so. And we could look at many of those. But this morning, I want us to examine three stories from the Old Testament that point to a coming resurrection, so that now that we know the end, now that we know that Jesus has risen again, each of these stories now has new meaning, new insight, so to speak. And the first one we 're going to look at is the one mentioned in Job, a suffering servant. If you have a bulletin, the outline is on the back. we're going to look at a suffering servant from Job and a faithful father and Genesis with Abraham, and then a mutinous missionary with Jonah. But first, let me begin by telling of Job and a suffering servant. And Job is a story that deals with the deep question of how is there suffering and pain in this world? How does that relate to God and it being in this world that he rules? Well, the story unfolds for us very quickly. In Job 1, beginning in verse 8, it reads... The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has. He will surely curse you to your face and the Lord said to Satan behold all that he has is in your power only do not put forth your hand on him well Satan is claiming that Job only appears to be a righteous person he only appears to worship God but in fact he doesn't really worship God he just does things for God because God gives back to him in other words Job is saying Satan is saying Job doesn't think you're the greatest thing in the universe. Job actually thinks he's the greatest thing in the universe. He wants you, God, to serve him rather than him serving you. Sadly, that's true for many people. God is wonderful. God is great as long as life is going well. But as soon as trials and tribulations come, I don't want anything to do with God. He's there to serve me. Well, we'll see how Job responded. But notice again in verse 8. Then it says, the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? God brought to Satan's attention Job. Two times in the last few months, I've gone by my house. and I, I always go by my house. As I've left my house and I've been walking or biking, these two massive dogs have come running out at me. Just a couple weeks ago, they did it again. I was on my bike and I had to swerve over two lanes into the other side of traffic and I was lifting my legs so they wouldn't bite my leg. The owner is not doing a good job of keeping his animals within the fence. They could come as far as they wanted. Satan is not like that. Satan can growl. He can bark. He can come charging, but he's on a leash. He is on God's leash and he can only go as far as God allows him. And so God says, yes, you may put trials in Job's life, but you cannot put your hand against him. Satan is on a leash. But with that permission, Satan then does go and he does disastrous ruin in Job. And one day he takes all his wealth, all his possessions, takes away all his children But the first chapter of Job ends with these words, the middle of verse 20 to 22. Then Job fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked will I depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. So Job faithfully responded to Satan's accusation because he had said, well, look, as soon as you take things away, Job will no longer worship you. And yet Job, under the most intense suffering, continues to worship God. He praised God because of God's worth, not his own personal wealth. He trusted God in the good and the bad, the joyful and the sorrowful. Satan is not done, though, for again, talks to God and he claims, well, look, he's only not cursing because you kept his health. So God extends the leash a little farther, so to speak. So look at Job chapter two, verses six through ten. There it says, so the Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your power. Only spare his life. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. So Satan pushes Job to the brink, and yet Job still praised and trusted God. His wife appears to be exactly what Satan said Job would be. Well, look, you hurt him, and he's going to give up on you. And that's what his wife says. Let's curse God. Let's just die. But Job will not manipulate. He will continue to worship. So we have this picture of Job that looks wonderful, but that's not the end of the story. He then has some so-called friends who show up to help him in his misery. And they know, look, We know why you're suffering, Job. You suffer because you did something wrong. They have this idea of karma. Well, look, if you have something bad happening to you, it's because you must have done something bad in the past. And if something's going good, you must have done good. And so they go back and forth. Job's friends, so-called, attacking him and Job responding. Job claiming his innocence and demanding he's done nothing wrong. And Job Responses go from trusting God until they begin to turn almost to accusing God. And yet in the midst of all this, Job has a truly inspirational moment. Turn to Job chapter 19, verses 25 through 27. There in one of these dialogues back and forth, Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. My heart faints within me. What is Job confessing? He is trusting that though his physical body, his skin, will be destroyed, yet somehow in his physical body, his flesh, he will see God with his own eyes. He knew that death, did not have the final word. Rather, he knew my Redeemer lives. What is a Redeemer? Well, a Redeemer is someone who redeems. But if you had a good English teacher, they said you can never define a word with the same word. So what does it mean to redeem? Well, to redeem is to buy something back. You maybe take it to a pawn shop, and then you go and you purchase it back with your money. Job is looking for the day when someone is going to buy back his sufferings. He longs for the day when life returns to the original design. When man was with God, able to see him and not suffering on earth, plagued by the curse of sin. And maybe it seems like life is against you. That your friends make Job's friends seem great. Your troubles make Job's troubles seem trivial. Things never seem to turn out right. You're at the end of your rope. You know that somehow, yes, God is involved, but you cannot put it together. How in the world could God have any part of this? There seems no hope. There seems no end in sight. And Job says to us, Know that your Redeemer lives. There is hope for though Job was in many ways blameless. He wasn't completely so. You know, the early church saw a connection between Job and the sufferings of Jesus, and often it was their practice in the week before Easter to read the story of Job and see an innocent sufferer. And we are like Job in that many times we do suffer not because anything we've done wrong. We live in a fallen world, and many of the sufferings we have have nothing to do with a sin that we personally committed However, for are honest, we also know there are many things we have done that we have not been punished for. We may be angry that the police officer pulled us over because everyone else was speeding. I wasn't. But we also don't say, haha, but there's about a hundred times you haven't caught me speeding. We like to protest our innocence, but don't let them know the times we've been guilty. So Job, though he was often innocent, he was a sinner like me and like you jesus though was perfect he only loved and cared for others he faithfully served his father and he did so without ever grumbling or complaining and what was his reward betrayal beatings false accusations a mockery of a trial condemnation crucifixion and the loss of his father's pleasure and presence unlike job though Jesus voluntarily went through all this. He suffered the full weight of God's wrath for sins that he never committed. Job and we deserve God's wrath and curse, but Jesus took that suffering in our place. But he rose again. He rose again, and Job, looking forward, could proclaim, "'I know that my Redeemer lives.'" He conquered sin, He conquered death, and now He redeems your life. He bought every single one of your sufferings with the currency of His blood. And He now says that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. Our sufferings are not meaningless. They are not accidental acts with no purpose They are not a joke of the gods toying with the humans. Our sufferings have been redeemed by Jesus, and he now cashes them in for his good, our good, and his glory. Yes, they still hurt. The pain is very real, but it is not eternal. For as Job says, we know that our Redeemer lives. So Job The suffering servant is one of the people that I think Paul had in mind as he said he rose according to the scriptures. He was a suffering servant. But we see another example if you flip back to Genesis 22 of a faithful father. Genesis 22 will read of another glimpse of the coming resurrection through a faithful father. Genesis 22 we will read verses 1 through 14 says after these things God tested Abraham and said to him Abraham and he said here I am he said take your son your only son Isaac whom you love and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you so Abraham rose early in the morning saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him on the third day Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took his hand, took in his hand, the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here am I, my son. He said, behold, the fire and wood. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. When they came to the place where God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid them on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from Abraham from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy. Or do anything to him? For uh, now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram, caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram, and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide as it is to this day. On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Now, the story we just read often leads to very strikingly different responses. Some people read this story and think of only a vindictive and cruel God. Some see this as being the stupidity of the Bible, for no sane person would ever say that God told them to sacrifice their child. And to be clear, if you came to me and said, God spoke to me this last week, and he told me to sacrifice my kid, I would say to you, God did not speak to you this week. It's not a matter of opinion. God is not bipolar. He's not schizophrenic. His moral law does not change. So God did not tell you to do what he already declared to be wrong. And yet those responses, Christians find in this story great hope and encouragement. Well, why do we find that? Well, because it's how it ties into the rest of the Bible. You know, if Jesus was not the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world, then this story does show a vindictive and cruel God. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then this story should shock us into critiquing the Bible. Well, why is that so? Well, let's dive into the rest of the story to find out. And understand this passage, Genesis 22, you really have to understand what's come before it. All the way back to Genesis 12 when God promised to bless the world through Abram at that point and his descendants. So God was promising a child and then he reaffirmed that promise in Genesis 15 that this would happen through his son. However, Abraham and Sarah continued to get older. Year after year of infertility then turned into decade after decade. And the promised child did not come. Each year of passing infertility probably brought confusion and grief. But as those turned into decade upon decade, it probably almost surely crushed faith and hope. Thus they eventually conceded that God must have intended for this to happen some other way. And so Sarah gave her maid to Abraham. But God made clear that that was not the plan. And yet they continued to age. How could God's word be true? How could the promise of a son be fulfilled? The doubts and unbelief surely crept in. But then God miraculously caused Sarah at age 90 to give birth to a son whom they called Isaac. God's promise of Abraham's heir who would bring God's blessing to all the families of the earth had hope. It had life. And then we read Genesis 22. God says that very son that you waited decade after decade for, that son you need to go and you need to sacrifice. The one whom you love. Now notice what it didn't say. God did not say, Abraham, go over to your tent and just go kill Isaac right now. There is a clear intention in what's going on. There's a clear redemptive picture that we see in this story. As well, we should notice that due to our sin, every person deserves death. God warned Adam and Eve that eating of the fruit would lead to death. God could justly at any time bring anyone's death, but He graciously and patiently waits. As well, God then allowed the firstborns To be representatives of the family. We see this in Numbers 3 where God has Israel give all the firstborn to him or redeem him. Or what do they do in Egypt? The firstborn of every family must die as a representative. And so God's call for Abraham to give his firstborn son was what was true of every family on earth. And yet God made a way for Israel to redeem their sons. And ultimately, every, not just firstborn son... But everyone could be redeemed. As as Tim Keller writes, Abraham was not just exercising blind faith. He was not saying, well, this is crazy. This is murder, but I'm going to do it anyway. Instead, he was saying, I know God is both holy and gracious. I don't know how he's going to do both, but I know he will. And we even see Abraham's faith in that. Look at verse 5. At the end of verse 5, he says, I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. If you read that in Hebrew, the worship and come again to you are both in the first person plural, which is a we will worship and we will come again to you. Abraham believed that not only were they both going to go up, he believed we're both also going to come down. Hebrews eleven seventeen through 19 makes it clear, for it says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom he said, In Isaac your descendant shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. Abraham didn't know what would happen, but he looked to God in faith. Abraham continued to go up the mountain, not knowing how, but trusting that God keeps his word, is loving and just. And on the way, when Isaac asked, well, where is the sacrifice? Abraham responds, God will provide the lamb. And so Abraham goes through until God then says, stay your hand. I have seen that you fear me. And then God provided the ram. The Lord provided. You know, the story is so rich and deep. We could focus many things in the passage. But remember the words of Hebrews. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. You know, a type is a biblical event, a biblical ritual or person that finds greater fulfillment later on often in Christ in his work of redemption. Tim Keller again says, years later, another father went up another mount called Calvary with his firstborn and offered him there for us all. You know, God's promise to bless the world through Abraham seemed doomed with Isaac's death. Yet this foreshadowed the greater son of Abraham who was to come, Jesus. In this case, the father of fathers did not hold back his hand. On Calvary, there was no ram in the bush, but rather it was the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. Abraham and Isaac are another example of what the Old Testament showed according to the scriptures of Jesus who was coming. And Abraham's willingness to sacrifice his son revealed his love for God. How much greater God's love that he didn't withhold his one and only Son. And since Jesus rose from the dead, it shows that God is not vindictive and cruel, but rather it's the greatest love ever shown. As the great hymn goes, see from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? Friends, there is no greater love than the love of God. There are no surer promises than the promises that God gives us in his word. And yet as we look around, it can often seem like Abraham's perspective. There's no way God can fulfill what he said. Yet God is the God of resurrection, power, and love. So trust in Him. Delight in His love. Though He calls you to surrender all to Him, trust that God never calls you to sacrifice something that doesn't have a greater purpose in it. So we've seen a suffering servant. We've seen a faithful father, both pointing to the resurrection. And thirdly, we see a mutinous Missionary who points to the resurrection, the story of Jonah. We won't look at many passages in depth, but we will end in Matthew 12, 20, 38 through 42, if you want to turn there. But you know the story of Jonah. God, in his gracious love, wanted to redeem, he wanted to save the Ninevites through Jonah's preaching. There was only one small problem with the plan, though. Jonah hated the Assyrians. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria, the sworn enemies of Israel who defeated Israel in battle. Loved ones had been killed by Assyrians. Friends and family had been taken and captured and taken into exile by Assyrians. The Ninevites, they were evil people. They're the enemy. They deserve death. They deserve destruction. Yet Jonah knew something. God delights in mercy and grace. And that was too much for Jonah. Jonah knew they needed the gavel. They don't need God's grace. And so Jonah, what does he do? He boards a ship to flee, to go in the opposite direction of Nineveh. But God was so desirous to work in Jonah's life and to deliver the Ninevites that he sends a storm against the ship. Such a strong storm that the sailors thought the ship was doomed. Even the pagan sailors knew, what do we need to do? We should cry out to the gods for mercy. What does Jonah do? I don't care. I'm just going to go sleep. So the sailors, they cast lots and they find out that the storm is due to Jonah. And in irony, these ungodly sailors will not put Jonah to death. Jonah, who's supposed to be a man of God who could care less about other people, is being saved by ungodly people. And yet, they eventually see that God wants them to throw Jonah overboard, and yet God does not let his man off the hook so easily. So Jonah is swallowed, and spends three days and three nights in the belly of a fish. Jonah 1.17 reads that he was there three days, three nights. And sitting in that dark, dank belly of the well, Jonah had time to look at his dark, dank and in that time to confess his sins and praise God. Thus he says in Jonah 2.10 the Lord be blessed. And then it says then the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. Then Jonah obeys. He goes to Nineveh and these are the words of his message. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. Now the Bible often gives us short details. It doesn't give us everything. But it actually seems that was Jonah's whole message. That he just said, 40 days and y'all are going to die. 40 days, you're going to die. Alright, I've preached God. I've done exactly what you wanted me to do. And yet in God's grace, that one line sermon brought the whole town to repentance. We could focus on many amazing things about the story of Jonah. And one of the major things is that God in his love wants us to reach out even to our enemies. To tell them of His grace. And yet this morning, I want to focus on what Matthew 12 tells us. Matthew 12:38 through 42 There, Jesus is being challenged and it says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to Him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from You. Look, Jesus, we want to know that You're real. How do we know that You're really who You say You are? Now to understand this, you have to realize Jesus has already given them many signs. So they're really wanting something that he, they will never accept. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves a sign, and yet no sign will be given it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it. Because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. Remember that great sermon, 40 days and you'll be judged? But something greater than Jonah is here. Jonah's message would have accomplished nothing if he stayed in the fish's belly. Jesus would be no more than an example or an inspiration if he remained in the grave. But Jesus rose again. That's the sign that Jesus gives. So here they're demanding, we want a sign so we know we can believe. And Jesus says, sure, I'll give you a sign. I'm going to rise from the dead. And what do they do? Well, Matthew 28 tells us the religious leaders make up a story. They know he rose from the dead, and yet they say that the guards stole his body at night. I'm sorry, that the disciples stole the body at night while the guards slept. And then Jesus says, one day... The men of Nineveh will stand in judgment against you. They heard this short message of judgment and they repented. You have seen the Lord. You have seen God's Son. You've seen His example. You've seen His miracles. Considering after the resurrection, they've seen the cross where justice and mercy meet. A Savior who loved so much that He gave His life a Redeemer who lives. Jonah went into the depths of the sea due to his own sin. Jesus tasted the depths of God's wrath for our sin. Jonah fled because he didn't want God's enemies to be saved. Jesus submitted to God's call for him because he wanted to be the message by which his enemies were saved. I began by telling of Bruce Willis, who starred in the film in which he was counseling this young boy. And the young boy would not communicate with him, but finally he was able to turn the corner, and the young boy was telling him, well, I see dead people. And as the story goes on, you've had 23 years to see it, so sorry if I run it for you here. He tells Bruce Willis that he himself is dead. Bruce Willis is counseling himself, so to speak. And the story makes you then want to watch it all over again. And a Hollywood story can rattle you. It can make you think, but it's just a story. It's not true. Jesus surpasses any Hollywood story, but he doesn't help the living. He doesn't help the living by being a dead person who speaks. Jesus helps Because he's a dead person who rose again. And he offers victory and life. Now, you might be here thinking, well, this is all well and good. It's Easter. Yes, we go to church. But I've kind of moved beyond fairy tales, myths, uh, stories that we want to believe in. I mean, a demonic being who causes harm in people's life, God calling a father to sacrifice his son. Someone being swallowed by a fish. I mean, this is all a little much, isn't it? We're 21st century people. We have science. I mean, don't we need to get something that's sure? We need facts, not faith. And yet, we have both. Because Jesus truly was a real historical person who lived in the first century. We know not just from the Bible, but from history that he died. And yet, Amazingly, for 2,000 years, no one can find his body. If he didn't rise from the dead, then it would have been so simple to end the whole thing. You just go to the tomb, exhume the body, and show that he died. If he didn't rise from the dead, then there's no other explanation for why his disciples went from running away in terror to just weeks and months afterwards being willing to die for the resurrection. If he did not die and rise from the dead, then there's no other explanation for the explosion of Christianity, a question that scholars have still not been able to answer. You know, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then everything in the Bible should be discarded. The stories are just hoaxes. They are myths. And everyone who follows Jesus is wasting their life. However, if Jesus did rise from the dead, then he is the son of God who lives and reigns. He really is the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world and to ignore Him or reduce Him to a mere philosopher or good teacher or someone just to see as an example is to make a mockery of everything He did and to jeopardize your entire future. If Jesus rose from the dead, then your whole life should be a response of worship By following him in all that he says. A life of complete surrender to his will. Since he not only created you. But he has also redeemed you. And saved you from judgment. So the resurrection of Jesus. It was foreshadowed in the Old Testament. It occurred in the New Testament. And it's the only lasting and true hope in this world. Like Job you might be going through deep and bitter suffering. Like Abraham, you might be facing challenges to your faith that question, can I even really trust God? Like Jonah, you might have enemies that seem so evil, you just seethe in anger. The hope is found in the reality that the Redeemer lives. His resurrection bought back your suffering. His resurrection secured all the promises of God. His resurrection purchased our forgiveness, which is then what allows us to love our own enemies. So what will you do with this? You know, the religious leaders in Matthew 12, they still wanted to come hear from Jesus. They wanted to talk to him, but they did not want to surrender to him. You know, Jesus doesn't give us the option of riding the fence. He doesn't call you to come to Easter and Christmas services and then follow your own life 363 other days of the year he says take up your cross and follow me and yet we know not only does he live but we live when we follow that path I pray that all of us cannot just say that the Redeemer lives but that each of us can say I know my Redeemer lives let's pray Oh, Lord, may that be true. You know every single person in this room. You know the friends and family will interact with this afternoon. Lord, would all of us know that my Redeemer lives, that there is hope, that death does not have the final word. Lord, may we rejoice, not just this day, but all our lives, in what your Son did, and in Him, may we find our hope and meaning. It's in His name we pray. Amen.